That's just a conspiracy theory of mine. But yeah, that's, not um, that's not a problem. Look, the, the, the basic thing is, and I, and I will when we do the talk properly, I will go. I will go through it. Oh, then Come wait, wait, wait. Thinking. Let me start the talk. Let's properly, let's do it. Let, yeah, don't don't blow your water early. <laughs> oh dear, boss. We are joined today by Ali Ryder, Steve Blommer, and Mark Ripper. Drew, it's on a sticky wicket, unscripted, unplanned, unprepared. But honestly, I had to prepare a little bit for this one. You can't do a show about this particular topic without doing some preparation. So it's an oh dear boss with an asterisk, I guess. Thank you all for being on the show today. You're welcome. Good to be here. <laughs> Very good to be here. So research into the cricketing career of Montague John Druitt has been going on for a few decades. And you all can jump in and correct me if I don't know what I'm talking about. It's early in the morning here. Philip Sugden, from what I can figure out, pretty much laid the foundation for this work into the cricketing career of Druitt back in the early 1990s. Before Sugden, one doesn't really find much mention of how Druitt's cricketing matches can put him in a specific place on a specific date and compare this with the dates in the times of the Whitechapel murders. But actually, there, actually, there was some stuff, but it wasn't in Ripper bits. There was stuff in the cricketing world by a guy called Irving Rosenwater, who was an historian and scorer, and he wrote some stuff, um, basically, Quite some, quite some years ago, looking at the fact that this rather good amateur cricketer, not fantastic, but good, was claimed by many people to be Jack the Ripper. And, and this, the, the and this uh, predated Sugden's book? I think you'll find it does. I'd have to, I'd have to check the actual date. Because I have but, seen cricketing um, articles, um, not by that particular author, but some yeah. others. Now, um, I need to that, check that are a little later. Um, I didn't bother to take the date down, but Irving's been dead quite a number of years now. I'd be surprised if it if it isn't at the same time as Sugden or predating it. I'd be very surprised if it was after. All right. Well, uh, um, as far as in the Ripperology, it's only after Sugden. Yes. Though, yeah. Um, other, yes. Yeah. Only after Sugden, as far as Ripperology works are concerned, do other Ripper authors incorporate information about Druitt's cricketing career into their own books. And then those later authors have also continued this research. Paul Begg incorporated Druitt's known cricketing schedule in later post-Sugden editions of The Uncensored Facts. <laughs> and um, Leighton published new discoveries in his book, Portrait of a Contender which I believe was written in the early 2000s. Mm. Now, internet message boards then took over the research and Andy Spalick posted quite a few newspaper clippings detailing Druitt's cricketing. And he was able to fill out some of the years prior to the murders. Um, Sugden, though, related the September 1st match that placed Druitt in Camford, Dorset, on the day after the murder of Marianne Nichols. And on Casebook back in 2008, Andy Spalick made the following statement, and I'm quoting here from Andy. I have checked for his usual club, Blackheath, and I found no mention of that club being involved in any fixtures during the month of August. The question is whether or not Monty played for one of the Dorset teams on the 30th or 31st of August. Now, Andy Spallett, being a druidist, goes on to say, being in Dorset on September 1st does not pose a problem because that gives Druitt more than 24 hours to get to Dorset from London. Mm. Unfortunately, I have not found any digitized archives of any Dorset newspaper. Both the Hampshire and Bristol papers covered a lot of Dorset news, but there is not mention in either of Montague playing cricket at the time of the Nichols murder. So that was back in 2008. Well, fast forward to a few weeks ago, and JTR Forums member Joanna posted an account from the Blandford Weekly News from the 1st of September, 1888, detailing such a match taking place in Dorset on August 30th, where Druitt played for Purbeck. So we have Druitt and Blandford 
on August 30th and in Canford as per Sugden on September 1st, the day before and the day after Polly Nichols' murder. Two places in Dorset that are 20 miles apart, leading many to feel that it's very likely that Druitt was also in Dorset on the day of the murder. Steve, you're itching to say something? Yeah. Um, what was really interesting with all of that was, I mean, the big debate about this was about could he have got from Blandford to London in time? And for two thirds, at least, if not three quarters of that very long post on JTR forum, 70 odd pages, it was argued that he would have to have caught a train at 4.55, which would have meant the game had to end well before that. About um, three weeks ago, it may have been, some research by Chris Phillips on there showed that, um, I think it was Chris, showed that there was actually a train he could have caught at 7.58 in the evening. So I think the point is he could have made it if he wanted to. But that completely overlooks the probability of the fact that the only reason to try to determine whether he could have made it if he wanted to would have been to completely overlook the obvious of why would he have wanted to? The only reason to be doing these very long, well, he could have gotten this train and driven, you know, trained three hours to London to kill a woman in Whitechapel at the wee small hours of the morning is because Druidists need him to be in Whitechapel in order to keep his candidacy as for Jack the Ripper alive. Whereas if he were actually a homicidal maniac who played a whole game of cricket that day, and then at the end of this long game of cricket was like, wow, I really need to kill me a woman. What possible reason would there be for him to try to catch a train take hours and hours to get to Whitechapel to kill a woman there when I'm pretty sure women existed in Dorset, wherever he happened to be. And he could have just killed a woman right where he happened to be. Like the, the idea of he could have done it is utter right. nonsense. It's, it's the possibility versus the probability. Right. And um, there's the but, point where but the But I do want to correct, as far as I understand it, though, this specific cricket match um, the day before Nichols' murder, was not a full match. It's hard to tell. We can't be sure. The records aren't good enough. The records, there was a, been a massive debate about whether it was a one-innings or a two-innings game, with people saying there were no one-innings games. Well, there were. The game he played on the 8th against Christopher's was a one-innings game. It's recorded on cricketcountry.com, I believe it is, that it was a one-innings game. So there were one innings games. There's no question of that. There's lots of stuff on that long post, which actually is um, posted by people who don't actually understand cricket that well, which is no disrespect to them. That They're not cricket historians and they don't know. The whole point about the, the post was, was not about whether he did do it. It's about whether that would rule him out. That was the point of the post. That was the point of the research. Would this game rule him out from being the ripper? Right, and what's your and and you don't think it does because I don't think it goes far enough. Possibility. I think it makes the argument that for the druidists, and as we all know, I'm not a druidist. It makes the argument for the druidists much harder, but it's not a knockout blow. Okay, but then they still they still have to come around. Like, why in the world would he have gotten on a train, traveled hours and hours on a train to get to Whitechapel in the well, wee small hours? It's all of the a part of like, Druid's cunning plan. To, now, okay, so okay, no, see, this is man, I'm damn it, I, I don't laugh because this is from Jonathan Hainsworth. I'm gonna so, laugh still. Like, if, if it's ridiculous, I'm gonna laugh at it because what? some things deserve to be laughed at. No, I, I mean, it's, it's, I say that slightly tongue in cheek, but okay, so so Hainsworth has pretty much um, taken up the mantle of of chief druidess. Um, since the unfortunate demise of Andy Spalick. and It wasn't unfortunate. That was a self-inflicted, <laughs> like... And so Hainsworth and Christine Ward Aegis's book, The Escape of Jack the Ripper, says a couple things about Drew's uh, cricketing career that you might find interesting. This is uh, how um, Hainsworth describes the following day, the September 1st match after um, the murder of Paulie Nichols. He says... 
By Saturday, September 1st, Monty Druitt was back in Winburn playing cricket in the, in the genteel surrounds of Canford, the cricket ground within Lord Winburn's estate. Tea with scones and dollops of jam and cream in the afternoon, shade of a crisp white marquee in those sunlit civilized surroundings. The actions of the previous early morning in fact, Whitechapel itself must have seemed like no more than a grotesque dream. Well, that's Pain- nonsense, obviously. That's obviously nonsense. That's a, that's a writer trying to push his viewpoint. Okay, now he does not he mention the fact that Druitt was playing cricket the day before Polly Nichols' murder, okay? Yeah. Elsewhere in his book, he says about Druitt's cricketing career, Uh, In the earlier months of 1888, in June and July of 1888, his performance as a cricketer, particularly for Blackheath, severely declined. His wicket-taking dried up, and his form slump may explain his exclusion from the team for an old Wickhamist match, which for Monty, as a senior member of that club, was more than unusual. What may also be inferred from this, however, (laughs) is that his state of mind was unsettled. Perhaps he was just not in the right frame of mind to run around a cricket field with his old schoolmates while his mother was settling badly into asylum life. But as we all know, Druitt kept on playing cricket regularly. So back to Allie's statement and my saying that this was all a cunning, the motive supposedly of why Druitt would leave Dorset go to Whitechapel and return to Dorset. After uh, Joanna posted um, this discovery on JTR forums, Hainsworth decided to chime in, posting a statement about the new discovery and said that actually he and his co-author had discovered it first. Oh, and he just left it out? Sadly, too late for inclusion in their book. Mm -hmm. Uh, He then goes on to claim it as confirmation that Drew was this criminal genius (laughs) in in creating an alibi that he was in Dorset for the Nichols murder, effectively only fooling a bunch of ripperologists 134 years later, right? And anyone who thinks otherwise just can't bear the fact that this case was solved in 1891 and it was Druitt. So so wait, so Druitt, anticipating the need for an alibi in advance decides like like there's no other place that he could have gone except Whitechapel in 1888 to kill a woman that was closer that would have gotten him back you know let no we're gonna get on a train for hours and hours wasn't it I think there's like connections or something I could be wrong on that get off a train wander around Whitechapel in the wee small hours of the morning having just gotten off an hours long train ride having played cricket that you know kill a woman hop back on to go back and do this all over again because there was no other place in England. No, it's because he could then, if questioned by the police, he could establish his alibi that he was in Dorset the entire time. And then all of his cricket mates go, he wasn't around all day. He was with the team. Because the majority of ripperologists believe that he was in Dorset the entire time, and we've all been fooled by his cunning alibi because he's a criminal. Can I make a couple of comments on Hainsworth's um, comments there? Sure. He said about his bowling had declined. Yeah, this is the man who, in the game on the thirty-first, the game on the thirtieth, took seven wickets for free wicket, uh, seven wickets for free runs. That's not declining. That's outstanding. By anything, he was still bowling well. He may have had a couple of bad games. To suggest he was left out of a game because his his performance wasn't up to it is pure speculation on Hainsworth's part really is rather well again he failed to mention the august 30th match uh, you know yeah. so, and, so. And, 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 as i said the week after not not the uh, I, may, I may have given the wrong de- wrong date before i spoke before but the week after the last game he's recorded to have played on the 8th of september was mm-hmm. against a team called christophers and he took wickets then as well this was a man who was still performing as a cricketer right up to the end of his career. So why Ainsworth got this idea that he was a declining force? I have no idea. Right. Now, well, secondly, well it's secondly, all, it might be, you know, there's there's a few 
it might be an attempt to establish a myth, you know, just like the failed barrister myth, you know. Um, but second point here, and it's quite important, the question you, uh, that Ali has raised a few times about why is he going to Lon- up to Whitechapel to do a murder? Well, one assumes that's not the reason why he's going up to London. One, one assumes that if he does go to London, whether he does the murder or not, he's going there for some business reason. At one o'clock, at, at the, in the late night hours no, of the morning? No, uh, it would be no, it would be from meeting the next morning, wouldn't it? He's traveling in the evening of the 30th. One assumes that let's just assume that he does make that trip and he's not Jack the Ripper. He's going up there for a reason, obviously, and that reason is probably business reason. He's probably got a meeting sometime early on the 31st. If we assume that he's going there for a meeting, that completely blows his alibi because if he's there for an official meeting kind of a thing, then he has no alibi because he's there on record on paper. So we can't, it's like they're playing both sides of the fence to try to keep his candidacy alive. Like he was going there for a meeting, but it's also like a great alibi. And it's like, "Mm, can't have it both ways there. And and it's it's only Ainsworth who's making this claim that it's, he's using that as an alibi. Nobody else. I haven't seen anybody else say that this is being produced. He's playing a cricket game to, to make an alibi. This is just a very pro-Druitt author trying to jump on it to strengthen his case, that's all. Well, and I didn't see the thing. If, I, if it did came out that he actually announced that, oh, yeah, we already found this information and he's just been sitting on it and not, like, that to me is like, oh, Okay, so you well, found you this know, information and you've just been sitting on it until somebody oh, he, else comes oh, yeah. forward it's, with it? I mean, in my yeah. humble opinion, it, it was the whole post was complete bullshit because because then because then he argues that contrary to everybody else's opinion, this bolsters the case against Druid. Seriously. Then why didn't he come forward on the boards first with this information when he found it? And, oh, I've exploded the case if it's such, you know. Well, because uh, we're all fools who have already made up our minds that Druitt was innocent (laughs) anyway, you know. We're just limited brained people. Our smooth brains can't handle this complex, rigorous analysis that has to go into keeping the candidacy of Druitt alive. Yes, which is going to make it all the more difficult when we, uh, Steve and I, have to explain to you two what cricket is. Oh, no. (laughs) So I I have had this conversation and I tapped out with you at the, a game can last five days and nobody wins, which is not a game. That's just extended torture. Like you guys came up with this nonsense just as like a way to torture yourself. Like I'm going to watch a game for five days. Yeah. And then nothing. That's no. right. One, oh one of them. Especially that back in the late 1930s, we actually had a timeless international match, which stopped at, I think it's the 11th day, because the England team had to catch the boat home from South Africa. No result after 11 days, I think it was. That's not a game. Actually, what you get in a game of that duration is you get a lot of... Um, a lot of subtleties, a lot of nuances, a lot of twists and turns, and the thing evolves slowly. It's it's the difference between you know people people who who enjoy the the, the complex flavors of a of a a good red wine versus people who you know only drink WKD blue. Um, it's 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 meant to be enjoy. It's meant to be savored. I get that. See, I'm not a. I, I don't. I can't watch sports. So this, like, I don't mind playing sports. Like, I'll play any game. But like the concept of sitting on my couch watching other people play a game. Right. So you're you, you're not a sports fan. I mean, there are people who like to watch baseball games on TV. There are baseball fanatics. It's no different, really. Um, I don't think with them with cricket. You can see that it's a striking and fielding game and that just like baseball, you try, you know, the the batter tries to hit the ball um, into a safe place in the outfield and then run to the next point before the fielding team can return the ball and, and get them out, right? You can right. see that. Yes. And they have to knock the little wickets off with the ball before they... But they just run up and down the same, like... 
Like it's like they're playing yeah. Red Rover, well, that, Red Rover, and just running up and down the same like I've, little. I mean, I've I've no idea what Red Rover, Red Rover is, but that perhaps is for another podcast um, <laughs> where where we do this in reverse. But um, I mean, the, the 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 difference with baseball is that when when the batter's standing in the batting box, the field opens out in front of him. Right, he's standing on the, on, on one in one corner of the diamond, and everything else is in front of him. Cricket is played with the pitch in the centre of a, of a bigger field and the pitch extends all the way around. Um, so it's a 360 degree game. Yeah, my one exposure to watching cricket was actually during the pandemic where my um, ladies group, we would meet in a big field basically to drink and, you know, whine about the pandemic. But, you know, we were outdoors and whatever and um, some families in the neighbourhood came and started playing cricket um, in the backfield by the neighbourhood where we used to live. And we and we were, you know, in our cups and had no idea what was going on, but we decided to be the cheerleaders and we just started randomly cheering whenever we thought something <laughs> good was happening. Yeah. And we would be like, what was that? I don't know, but it looked good. Cheer. So we I mean, would just... Yeah, sure. and these I mean, people, that was my exposure to cricket in life. So. Having, a, having a drink is no impediment to enjoying cricket and it may indeed help you to enjoy it more. Um, Some would say are, it's essential. Are, yeah, and there are many people who go to cricket matches... Uh, or you know, just encounter cricket matches on village greens in in uh, in this country, and sit there reading the newspaper. Or sometimes they do a painting of what they see. Um, sometimes they keep score, as Steve was alluding to before. There's a whole kind of uh, science around scoring cricket matches. Um, so you don't have to be it's, you don't have to be a fanatic in the way that it's, it doesn't work the same way as a baseball game or let's say a soccer game in the uk where you are cheering people on all the time you can do many many things at cricket matches which only involve the cricket on, on the most tangential level right and um this well and the same goes for baseball you know there are people who um go to baseball games and and um track each player's performance yeah. and keep uh, their own like uh, score card for I think that's something that cricket cricket has learned from baseball over the last 20 odd years is that it has become a lot more statistically mm-hmm. um the, the statistics are a lot richer than they were before um scoring itself is a is a particular art but we do also now have We've always had sort of batting averages and things like that, but that we have a lot more detail around that now, um, which I think is something that has sort of come over from baseball, where there's you know there's, there's enormous amounts of statistics coming out of baseball. Okay, so let's uh, return this to Druitt, but keeping on kind of the same track. So a lot of the discussion on um, JTR forums is is more about the culture that surrounds a cricket match. So they say, well, okay, um, we don't know the exact length of this match, but they would have, there would have been a break for lunch at some point. And then, and then maybe after the match, there would, there would be snacks and tea and, you know, so that's totally different from baseball. I mean, we have a seventh inning stretch in baseball, but the players don't sit down and and throw a picnic blanket on the field. And in cricket matches, Meals are a big part of it, and you should have at least two meals per day. Right. Okay. So some of the timing that is, cons- Ali. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just any any sport that you can like eat a meal in the midst of playing <laughs> is not a sport. That, that, that's not a sport. So the timing. So the problematic <laughs> timing um, when it comes to Druid um, and this cricket match not only is just the length of the match itself, but the breaks that would occur uh, in the match and whether there was a social function amongst the cricketers immediately (laughs) after the match. And then following that, apparently on this, um, on this day, there was like a village uh, festival going on. So you had a band playing at a bandstand and things were shops were closing early and, a whole host of different, you know, because with ripperology, nothing can be simple. So you have this whole host of wrenches thrown into to this thing that people are trying to have to figure out in order to determine how much time Druitt would have had to actually 
leave, get on a train, switch trains um, in Winburn or somewhere and head to London. Mm. So what do you know? Uh, and Steve, you've been following this more than I have. Yeah. So outside of the cricket match itself, which we don't know the time length mm-hmm. of necessarily, what's known about the other activities? There that- was a um, a festival taking place, like 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 a fate based taking place, um, not exactly there, but close by. Um, there's a possibility that the weather may have affected the game in fact i mean if it's raining you don't play simple as that cricket being an english sport if it rains and we're in a country where it rains a lot of the time you don't play the start time and the exact duration are actually red herrings in reality all that matters is what was the latest train he could have caught and what, what, what and, and and um what's that been decided as it's been decided he could have caught a train from from Landford at 7.58. There was one from there at 7.58, which went to Templecombe. And that one got into London late. But so 7.58 from the station at Blandford is not that far from where he was he was playing. It's unlikely that um, a game of that type would go on much beyond seven o'clock just because it's getting dark at that stage in september um i mean just looking just looking at the at the scorecard from from the 30th of august um so it seems to me that the isle of purbeck must have batted first and scored 62 of which drew it got 21 yeah that's 21 by himself um and then by they they lost their 10 wickets for 62 runs then it's Blandford's turn to bat. Blandford scored 25 in total, and Drew it takes seven wickets for three runs in 10 overs. Probably, well, quite possibly, five ball overs. Um, you can see a lot of, a lot of other um, scorecards where they're bowling five ball overs, whereas the convention nowadays is that an over is six balls long. Um, so t- to bowl 10 overs, and it seems like Oakley was bowling from the other end and possibly took the last wicket. He certainly took the wicket of, of batsman batting 11th. There could be about 19 overs in Blandford's innings. To bowl 19 overs on a village, in a, in a village game takes how long, Steve? Uh, I'd say anything from 50 minutes to an hour and five minutes, hour and 10 minutes. Yeah, all right. So let's say an hour and a quarter, just to be, just to be fair. Yeah. Let's imagine yeah. that Blandford bat for an hour and a quarter and get 25. So Isle of Purbeck gets 62, which is two and a half times as much. So let's say they bat for two and a half hours. Yeah. We've got three and three quarter hours now, right? This game's yeah. four hours long at most, I reckon. Yeah? I Tend to agree at, that score, at that scoring rate. If they started now, obviously that would be enough. The question we don't know is when they started. We don't know whether the weather was an issue during the game. My guess is that if you're playing a cricket match on a Thursday in Dorset on the 30th of August, you probably start as early as possible just in case the weather's coming in later on, yeah. and in case it gets dark. So imagine you start at 11 o'clock and you play for four hours, you're done by three. Yeah. Then you, if you build lunch into it and you have, let's say, half an hour or 45 minutes for lunch, you're still done by four. And if we go the other extreme and say that it doesn't start till two in the afternoon, mm-hmm. you're still done by six. Mm-hmm. Six. And, and then um, the yeah, 7.30 train or where where does it go first, Steve? The 7.58 goes from, um, goes to Templecombe and he has to catch a train. Hang up. Is it seven? Yeah. 7.58 takes him to Temp- Templecombe, and there's a train from Templecombe around 8.40-ish. And that's leaving from where? Wimborne? There's a train at, in, at Blandford at 7.58. That one, he, he catches okay, that. Okay, so, so, so the Blandford train goes... It allows the connection. Okay. so you need to um, go onto the actual page on, on the uh, JTR Forum's website where it, it's given. So I don't want to say it's a direct train... To Temple, to uh, Temple Cum, but I, I read it as such because there's no talk about a, a separate changeover. Because like, you know, a separate changeover and adding yet another leg to this journey yeah. to get him to Whitechapel—that yeah. would but be one connection feeling, too far. After this, after this time was discovered fairly recently, 
um, the general feeling is that on that on that post, apart from perhaps one person, is that um, it's quite possible for Druitt to have got into London for the Friday morning. What happened to the idea that he um, dropped off all of his uh, cricket gear and stuff at Winburn before well, he went to London? Again, it's being pushed by one person, one person who who just wants to just to dismiss Druitt so he can push his own candidate. Uh, so what? No where, for- okay, so the, then then the, then the question is, well, what did he do with his gear? Leave it and and. Leave it in Blandford and, because he's going to be going back to Canford the following day and, and they're left, only 20 miles apart? Or There are lots of options, Jonathan. He could have left it with a friend. He could have left it at the club. He could have taken it with him into London and dropped off wherever he was staying in London. To say that... Um, it, that's taking his oh, kit but then, bag then you have problem. to add in him stopping over in London to drop off all of his equipment before then going out onto the streets of Whitechapel. So don't forget to add in the, the delivery of equipment. To, right. to what the, time does to the, the train in? OK, so let's let's talk about in London. So he arrives where? Aldgate? No, no. He His train would get into Waterloo. Uh, Waterloo's not far from his chambers uh, in the inner temple. And how would he get from there to uh, Bucks Row? Walk. Uh, it's not far. Uh, uh, no, a twenty-minute walk, twenty-five-minute walk. If you're going slowly, it's not. It's not particularly from long Waterloo route. Station. No, from his chambers. Okay, so he would what? Take a cab from uh, Waterloo walk, to his walk, chambers? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? Why not? Why not, Jonathan? I think okay. all those things. All those things are possible, and there's also. You know, at railway stations, there's left luggage compartments where you yes. can you can leave things. And, um, yeah. yeah. Okay, so do we thing. know how the cricket players um, would have gotten to Blandford? Would they all come individually, or did they travel as a team? No so, way of telling at all. Um, until until we find out who you know. So I can see who's playing for Blandford. Two people whose surname is Thurston, both opening, so they they're very <laughs> likely related. Um, the Reverend D.P. <laughs> could easily be the local vicar. Um, these are people who are available on a Thursday to play a, an unimportant cricket match. Um, so there must be there must be gentlemen of, of some leisure. They don't have work commitments, um, or at least nothing they can't get out of for the purpose of playing a cricket match. So my guess is they all live locally. Okay. And when Steve said that he could have left his equipment with his club, what do you mean by that? With his players, with the players at the club. So, okay, so so like giving them to a friend, you had said, to just yeah. hold on to. Yeah. Okay. Well, we talked about down in Dorset. Everything's very close together down there. It's not exactly uh, hundreds of miles apart. You, you, you leave it with either an official of the club and you collect it when you come back, or you leave it with a friend who plays for the club or with a friend who's watching the game. Given that uh, you guys are in agreement that the match probably would have been over um, sometime after three o'clock. That would have given him four hours to catch the train. Plenty of time. Um, well, I'm prepared to say that the game might not have finished until seven o'clock. I'm not, I'm not going to stick my neck out and say that. Um, cause, if cause it started as early time. as 11, right, not knowing when it started. Yeah. So any time between... Four o'clock and seven o'clock, I would say, is a reasonable time for the game to finish, which gives him the best part of an hour to get changed, to get to walk down to the station to okay. catch the seven fifty-eight. This is not a pro-Druid argument. This is basically just looking at the facts yeah. and saying, does it rule him out? It doesn't. It makes it harder. Right. Okay. Certainly so harder, uh, I, mean, I think it, we it, have to discuss the difference between possible. Right. Well, and I just probable. wanted to. I just wanted and, to um, uh, mention. Okay. So let's take the Annie Chapman murk. Okay. Yeah. Um, on um, September 8th, the day of Chapman's murder, Druitt played at 11.30 in the morning yeah. at Rectory Field in Blackheath. Yeah. Yeah. He would have then, assuming he was a ripper, killed Chapman at 5.30 in the morning, caught the train to Blackheath, and have been on the cricket field by 11.30. Yes. Okay. No problem with that too. What we would have here then... And actually, it kind of falls in line with what some of the stuff, to give Druidists credit, you know, they're helped in their case by folks like George Sims. 
who says that Jack the Ripper, most likely referring to Druitt, rode in tram cars and omnibuses and traveled to Whitechapel um, by railway, often late at night. Alfred Knowles, who might be a dubious source or not, I don't know, but the Druidists bring him up as well, also says that the time has been wasted in looking for Jack the Ripper amongst the rags of Whitechapel. They should have immediately went to every railway station within reasonable distance of London immediately after the murder was reported, and every passenger going out of the city would have to be have been scrutinized. So there was this theory that Druitt was a commuter killer, which would make the Jack the Ripper murders even more spectacular than they already are. But he doesn't need to be a commuter killer. He had Chambers 20 minute, 25 minute walk away from the right, murder. But people say that that's a business um, that he wouldn't have soared things. I mean, arguments uh, are... It's all speculation, Jonathan. Yeah. The fact that he had a place he that he had access to. Um, I don't. I really don't see a gatekeeper who's an employee refusing a gentleman who's a barrister access to those chambers. It was a social thing. Right. The gatekeeper's there to stop undesirables getting in, not gentlemen. And choosing Blackheath as his base of operations in London as opposed to his chambers. Not far um, away? Huh? 40 minutes, 45 minutes? Too far away. And by train, we have proof that um, there were no late night trains, Blackheath to the East End, right? Hmm. Well, there, 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 there's very few trains would go into the East End. Yeah, where does the Blackheath service run into? Cannon Street, probably. Um, probably. Or London but, Bridge. But supposedly, according to Sugden, there was no all-night train service between London and Blackheath. It so, doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be. I mean, if if he comes up during the daytime, well, if he chooses his uh, his uh, King's Bench um, chambers, obviously as his base of operations, then there doesn't need to be, right? But even if he's coming from Blackheath, say he comes up at, let's take the double. The double event. He comes up at seven o'clock in the evening. The murders take place between midnight and one forty-five. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to um, hang around too long. He, he can right. just, you know. But but afterwards, after the killings, he can't get he out. Goes back to his chambers, or he goes to see friends. If he, yeah, but see, that's the thing. It's like. Okay, his chamber. Wait, he goes to see friends with like the possible of viscera all over him. Like that would be a very awkward friend visit. Like, hi, look, I'm hurting goo. Like again, again, Ali, I'm one of those who believe that he wouldn't have had that much on him at all. I I don't believe he would. I believe that the hands and the lower arms might have got blooded, and that's it for for the Ripper. I don't see much. I don't see a need for much else apart from the Kelly case quite honestly, but um, I'm not here trying to defend Drew. I'm just putting out what's possible, not what's probable. What's probable is that he is not Jack the Ripper. And some people have tried to argue, going back to the cricket matches, that there were a couple of, 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 of other M. Druids playing cricket in the Dorset area at the time, and that this M. Druid playing in the 30th match wasn't Monty. But I would argue that on probability it was. Um, it's about probability as and possibility, as Ali said. The possibility that he could have got back in time to do the murders, having played this cricket match, exists. The probability is that he, he, he probably isn't. He probably didn't get back in time. He probably wasn't the murderer. I mean, I think, Jonathan, in answer, I, I think if, if the question you're asking is whether it would have been absolutely impossible for someone to be in Whitechapel at 5.30 in the morning and Blackheath at, let's say, 11 o'clock in the morning. That's absolute. It's completely possible. Completely possible. And it doesn't really matter whether you have a train um, because there are cabs, and it doesn't really matter if you have a cab because you can walk. You could, you could, you could easily walk to, Bla- to Blackheath in from Whitechapel in, depending when you've got to cross the river, but... Um, like an hour or something. An like hour, that. yeah. Yeah, probably something like that. I think that there's a reason why we call a gathering of ripperologists an argument of ripperologists, because a lot of times ripperologists get so caught up in the arguing of minutiae 
and possibility that the concept of common sense and probability gets overlooked. And like Jonathan was saying earlier, not only would this make him unique in the annals of serial killer history, but we also have to look at like the underlying motivations and stuff of things like, okay, so he's overwhelmed by this urge to kill a woman. But what he's going to do is he's going to get on a train and then transfer to another train and then transfer to another train, then get off and get into London and then walk blocks and blocks and blocks passing women all along the way, all of whom could have been a victim of him. At any point along the way, he's going to have had multiple opportunities to uh, carry out his bloody impulse. Uh, And he just passes them over and passes them over and passes them over because he has to get to this predetermined location in Whitechapel and only this predetermined place in Whitechapel in order to carry out um, his homicidal impulses. And that is so far beyond the realm of probability and what we know about, you know, uh, any kind of, he ha- how many prostitutes did he have to pass on his, on his walk from the train station to get into Whitechapel in order to carry this out? And the only reason to believe that all of these unprobable events occurred in an unprobable sequence to get him into Whitechapel in that morning is because that's the only thing that makes him Jack the Ripper. If he had a homicidal impulse, no, no, he could have no, carried no, no. it out anywhere along the route. No. I mean, I don't think anyone is saying that there are not other p- perfectly good reasons why we might doubt that Druitt was Jack the Ripper. I mean, there are lots of good reasons to to doubt mm. whether Druitt was Jack the Ripper. I think the question is whether playing the cricket match on the 30th uh, rules him out of being in London on the 31st and therefore responsible for the murder of Marianne Nichols. And as far as I can see at the moment having not followed this thread and trying to read it sort of simultaneously to doing this podcast, I can't see anything there that actually makes it impossible for him to be back in London by the 31st. So, or, or by the morning of the 31st. So, um, so yes, there, there, there are lots of good reasons to think that Druid is not Jack the Ripper. This ne- isn't necessarily something that the whole point is this doesn't rule him out entirely. Right. And what it also doesn't do is provide any evidence that he was Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And 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 um, and really, um, there is basically zero evidence that he was Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Outside. Apart from what we what we know is that some people, for example, McNaughton, thought that he was right. Apparently yeah. thought that he was. Mm-hmm. And that's it, but we, we don't, it. But we don't, we don't, yeah, we don't really know why they thought that was a, a justifiable conclusion to reach. Right. But apart from the private information, which McNaughton tells us nothing about. Right. Yeah. So we have zero evidence out, outside of McNaughton's claim um, mm-hmm. that this guy was Jack the Ripper. But we're building all of this around this guy to determine if a cricket match the day before and the day after rules him out of as being Jack. It seems like, uh, I don't know, maybe suspectology is just not my bag. All right, well, here's, here's my thing then. So batting at number eight for Blandford on the 30th of August was the Reverend D. Pierce. He got a duck, which means he didn't score any runs. He was bowled by Druitt for zero. He is also not ruled out as a suspect in the murder of Marianne Nichols. And in fact, he's even more <laughs> likely than Druitt because if they were batting second and he was out, he, there was no part, there's no further part of the game in which he could participate. So he could have left early, not waiting for the last three wickets to fall um, and jumped on an even earlier train. Who knows? Um, yeah. None, none of those cricketers are off the hook for that murder. <laughs> They're all. <laughs> It was a conspiracy. Oh, let's get this. It was a conspiracy of cricketers. Yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah the, the only difference is one of them happens to be someone someone we've heard of who's been connected with the case for reasons we don't fully understand. Um, but yes, the Reverend D. Pierce, he's my suspect for Marianne Nichols. I don't <laughs> care what anyone says. <laughs> Those reverends are shady, man. I like it. I like it. I mean, I mean, it comes down to it. The point is that 
the research is very interesting. And if it had an end time for the game, then we might be able to rule him in or out. As it is, we can't. We can't rule him out because we don't know what time the game finished. And we can't say that he, he couldn't have caught that last train. So it doesn't debunk it. It just makes it a lot more difficult for the Druidists to argue. It causes it puts another problem in their in the, their way. Another argument that it's not probable that he would have caught it. That's where that's where we end up. The whole point about this thread as it developed was there were people arguing this rule drew it out. Well, it doesn't. It makes it more difficult to rule him in, but it doesn't rule him out. Because, I'm going to go with it rules them out because well, the yeah, because that's the whole... there's there there comes a point when the balance of probabilities is stacked so high that it doesn't matter whether it's technically possible that one day I might kidnap Sebastian Stan and chain him up in my basement to use for my own amusement. But the 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 number of facts that would have to go into me doing this, starting with first digging a basement because I don't have one, like the, the the facts of it, the probabilities are so high against this as to make it absurd to kind of contemplate to some degree. And I think there there comes a point where one fact alone may not say no. This rules them out. But when you add a fact and a fact and a fact and a fact and you come up with a balance of all of these facts together, the probability makes it to an absurd level of we would have to believe this and this and this and this and this in order for it to occur. I'm good. Like, I'm perfectly happy with everybody else saying technically it's possible. Therefore, I'm not ruling it out. But for me, technical possibility doesn't yeah. trump the weight of one behavioral science and and the probability of what would have to actually occur for this to, to make it, you know, a, a, a possibility for me. Yeah, we dismiss, we dismiss uh, people tend to dismiss um, all the other suspects be based on probability, but yet latch on to their own suspect based on the merest thread of possibility. Yeah. Confirmation Which, bias is a is a a powerful factor in ritology. Yeah. I mean Drew is very much like several other candidates for for the Ripper. He's got a set he's got a few very vocal supporters. I'm not sure that the vast majority, a large number of people actually think that he is a viable candidate for Jack the Ripper. Well, he may be viable just about, but I'm not sure many people actually think he is a, a serious suspect. There are one or two who have written several books who are champions of him, but they are limited in number. Yeah, and there is still the historical mystery of why anybody at the time could have considered Drew it to be Jack the Ripper. Yes. What what did McNaughton know? What did Sims know, presumably through McNaughton? Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to work out why people thought the way they did is still, I think, a viable um a viable avenue of inquiry. Um I I don't think Drew it was Jack the Ripper personally, but um what we don't have is we don't have the the final nail in the coffin to use a, a completely inappropriate pun. Like, to me, the more interesting story here than the Druid story is the idea that, you know, we have researchers who are claiming that they came across this information earlier and withheld it. And so to me, that is the story that is more interesting, which is how many of our researchers do we know that are putting forth ideas based on and, and, and withholding research that we, we, we've all run across this in some degree or another, but it, it just lets you know, whenever you're reading a book that is whatever it may be, think about the things that you're not being told in that story to tell the story that the author wants you to. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. I agree with that. I, agree and with I, I think it would be nice to think that if that information was discovered, whether they, whether Jonathan Hainsworth thinks it's pro his case or anti his case, really, um, that there was some effort made to contact the publisher and say, listen, this is important information which needs to go in the book. Can the print run be stopped? Um, is there time to make this amendment? Um, and I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think I feel like if there wasn't, if there genuinely wasn't time to make that amendment, um, 
then you know then there there are forums and things like that where that sort of information can go um and it's seems a funny way to find out about it now and then and then hear that someone who's written so extensively about Druitt um in fact discovered it earlier and never said anything there's one other point there mark um the book by Hainsworth is available on Kindle. There's mm. no reason why he couldn't have done an update yeah. of the Kindle version. Absolutely. None at all. There is such a thing as sort of saving up saving up stuff for a second edition. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just, I feel like, I don't know whether if, I, if, that, if that same sort of thing happened to me, actually the same sort of thing did sort of happen to me with the salmon sandwiches. Um, but that's a, you know that's i'm not that's mango books they're publishing comparatively small numbers it's compa- maybe comparatively easy to to stop the print run at that point um or maybe i just got in before at the right time before anything had happened maybe that just wasn't possible with him but um anyway you know there there are other ways to to publish material on the forums whitechapel society journal other ripper publications there you know there are options available it seems a shame that it had to come out this way but Sylvie, um you did a lot of back and forth with andy about druitt's cricketing career you probably recall posting um as steve was mentioning earlier you know sometimes it's under mj druitt sometimes there's two mj yeah. druitts you were yeah. posting cricket matches that we believe could have been Druitt where he was just referred to as Jay Druitt. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember any of that in detail. There is a, there is a J a James Druitt who is operating in um, actually as a lawyer in Hampshire, Christchurch at that, at that time is Christchurch Hampshire or Dorset in my head, it was Hampshire. Um, I'd have to revisit all of that. That was, a, that was many, many years ago. Yes. Jonathan. Yeah, um, but, but I remember um, also um, having some interaction on the forums with Adam Went, who is a big cricket fan from Australia, um, and very knowledgeable about the game, um, and he was interested in it too. But this is kind of stuff that I was doing more or less in passing, rather than focusing on it, perhaps as much as I should have done. Right, but I just want to acknowledge your contribution um, because you did you did find a quite a few matches from the eight, mid 1880s i guess that probably involved druitt um, and i think i think there's there is uh, maybe maybe it is something that that um you know now that we have a lot more digital resources than we had before a lot more digitized newspapers maybe it is something that needs to be revisited just in order you know like to collect cricket matches in which he was involved some of the cricket matches in which he was involved he was playing, Druitt was playing to a reasonable standard. He was playing with and against cricketers who played at first class level, county level, which is, you know, a pretty, a decent standard of, of, of um, a decent standard of cricket in this country. So he was, he was obviously a, in his, in his way, a decent, a decent performer, a decent cricketer, mixing with cricketers who were, you know, whose who's prof- profile was increasing at the time. So mm-hmm. maybe it's something that needs to be captured again and again and again whenever new digital resources are available. Yeah. If you look at these cricket matches, they are, they are often, they look to me like teams which are kind of cobbled together. Um, you're not, although you may be associated, like Druitt was associated with Blackheath Cricket Club, um, and that that cricket pitch is still there that that he played on at Blackheath, and um, they still play cricket there. Um, but you might <laughs> on a on a Thursday in Blandford in Dorset, you might just be putting out whoever fancies a game on that day. You're not mm-hmm. travelling around together like the New York Yankees travel travel around together and play. You know, you get the same squad of players who play every fixture. I think it's a lot looser than that. I think it's more about availability. Um, so I don't necessarily know that there was any sort of particular team camaraderie. I think it was probably, you know, it's a match played more or less in good fun. Um, 
and very possibly without any particular sort of personal uh, relationships and commitments between the players. Um, it may just have been who was available on that day. So I'm not sure had um, disappeared from a social function that everyone was meant to or expected to attend or likely to attend, then it wouldn't have been a very good alibi, would it? Um, but I feel like, you know, like, like my suspect, the Reverend Pierce, um, you know, like I say, he, he could, I think, have left the ground a little earlier than everybody else because he was out and there was nothing more for him to do. So, um, and so he, I'm, I'm, and he, I'm very suspicious of him. Very yeah, suspicious. And, his, and his, uh, his fellow team members probably wouldn't have wanted him around after. No, he, he's, and, he's a buzzkill and right. possibly, possibly a snoozathon. Um, and that's why he wanted to kill the prostitutes. I mean, he is a reverend. Yeah, he had yeah, the motive. Exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so if he wasn't there, probably they would all have a better time anyway. Um, but he wasn't because he was up here over there um, doing what, doing, doing that. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, so he's, he's a very suspicious character, much more so than Jewish, I, th- I think, in my view. Yeah. Um, Drew, it's one of those um, suspects similar to like a Tumblety, where w- when you have a Jack the Ripper suspect whose name is searchable in the newspaper database and throws up so many hits, uh, as more new- and more newspapers are being digitized, like Mark was saying, <coughs> it's something that we do have to continue to revisit. Mm. You know, you don't get that with with um, very many other suspects. You know, you can be a, a proponent of the Lechmere theory and and there's an off chance that something might be in some newspaper that, you know, no one, no one has, uh, that hasn't been digitized yet. No one's discovered yet that could possibly provide Lechmere, let's say, with an alibi for one of the murders. It, that, that's not nearly as likely as someone who had a public life like Druid mm-hmm. and had mm-hmm. a public life like Tumblety hits your cart to one of those mm-hmm. horses as your suspect, you know, you are playing a uh, more dangerous game in a way. Then again, you know, who would have thought all those years ago that, um, you know, Kosminski, Aaron Kosminski, I should say, was walking around with a, an unmuzzled dog. Um, right. And, you know, no one was looking for the unmuzzled dog in the paper at the time. And, you know, then it, then it crops up. So I guess you never know. Um, but but I think you know the the probability if if your interest is in discovering who Jack the Ripper was then then there's a, there must be a strong prob- probability that we're all doing the wrong work all of mm. us um, and uh, but if your interest is in working is in trying to find out why even the police at the time who apparently had access to a lot more information than we do couldn't agree about who it was. Um, then I think that I think that is the avenue to pursue. Really, is try and find out why nobody agreed. I think, of- I think we're an example of that. Like, like Ripperology is that exact example. Is that we probably have more facts at hand right now than the than the police did. To be honest, like if you really think about it. Yeah. But we don't, you know, nobody, you know, everybody's got their suspect, everybody's got their theory, everybody's got their predetermined confirmation bias, and. Uh, and the, uh, my dad was a police officer. I fully well know that, uh, that, you know, what you might believe to be the reality of the situation, their own biases get in the way there too. Yeah, we're not great as, as creatures at, at knowing how to dispense with our own, our own preconceptions and mm-hmm. see things as they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're not designed for as much even as much sensory input as, as you know, as, as we get, uh, we have to make things as simple as possible. So we are, we are predetermined. We are predisposed to, um, to oversimplifying. Uh, but I think then this ripperology itself might not be academic, but I think in terms of trying to work out why people thought the way they did, I think that, I think that is what, you know, academic historians do a lot of the time is they, they try to establish, uh, those sorts of details from the sources. I think that I think trying to work out why, for example, senior police officers thought the way they did could be considered an academic pursuit. Mm-hmm. And it could be a pursuit undertaken by an academic historian. 
or by a mechanic. That's the beauty about research is that literally anybody can do it. Well, they that, just that, need I, the devotion and the attention to detail and, a, and, an, and an eye. A lot of the very best research in referiology is being done by people who are not working in academia, but it's of an extremely uh, commendable standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder whether academia always notices the contribution that the average ripperologist can make to historical understanding. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that then. Rippercast offers uh, its full apologies to the descendants, if any, of the Reverend D. Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> that was Odir Boss. Um, Druid's on a sticky wicket, but I guess he's not, is he, Steve? Not as far as I'm concerned. No. All right, that's it, fellas. Okay, good one. And ladies. All right, thank you. Nice to talk to you all. All right, bye. See you soon, guys.